And in the New Testament, both literal and figurative Babylon play a huge role in biblical revelation concerning the end times. So Babylon is, without a doubt, therefore, a very important doctrinal subject in the Bible. <clears throat> okay, now, getting into Isaiah 13, verse 1 here. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Oracle or burden, and the word is massah, means a burden or a load. And it refers to what is carried about with a focus on the effort needed to transport it from one place to another. It has the negative sense of bearing something heavy, rendering it burdensome. The word also carries the nuance of duty or responsibility. The responsibility of revealing the word of God when it refers to God's people suffering horrible calamities and to Yahweh's divine punishment of Israel was a burdensome, difficult responsibility for the prophet to bear. The term burden, it's Messiah, is derived from a verb which means to lift up, in this case to lift up one's voice or spirit, that is to prophesy or to have a vision. The burdens are mostly predictions of divine judgment and punishment for the sins of the nations against Israel. So this is, the picture here is of these, these calamities and terrible things that are happening are a burden on these prophets to reveal to people. It weighs heavily on their soul and their heart. So other theologians want to relate the meaning to an utterance, an oracle, or a pronouncement, and specifically relate it to prophetic utterances such as we have here in Isaiah, but that's too specific and too limiting. The concept of utterance may come from a different Hebrew root. Burden more accurately conveys the meaning of the word as used in these series of prophecies in Isaiah. Uh, the Net Bible claims the word is a technical term that means pronouncement, a lifting up of the voice. But to maintain that position, they have to add the concept of the voice that is lifted up. That's not part of the definition that I gave you. Uh, their claim that the word is a technical term is, I don't think, correct either. A technical term means the word is used in the same way throughout the scriptures, but that's not the situation with this word. Uh, maybe they're limiting that claim to this type of prophetic context, but that's not clear, and I don't think they should be calling a word that is commonly used for other things a technical term. Technical term means it just means this one thing, and that's it. Now, the situation before us in Isaiah may be a combination of both senses of the word. It was a pronouncement or, or an oracle in the form of a vision from God through the prophet to the Israelites. And the nature of that revelation proved to be a heavy burden for the prophet to bear. Yet, he had the duty and the responsibility to reveal these prophecies regardless of how horrifying and terrible they were going to be. The word saw is chazah, and it means to see, to behold, to witness, to observe. In this context, it refers to a vision that reveals heretofore unknown revelation. It may refer to not only seeing with the eyes, but also to any mental or spiritual perception. The word leaves no doubt that Isaiah received this information by means of a vision. However, some theologians deny this was a vision, 
uh, constable kind of downplayed this a little bit when he said he believes that when Isaiah saw the vision, it was in the sense that God enabled him to understand the things he, meaning God, proceeded to reveal. But that's a figurative interpretation of this word's meaning, which could be possible if the context didn't rule out a figurative meaning. Therefore, while it's possible, the problem for that statement is the meaning of the word doesn't support it. It can, it can simply mean to see something, but in this context, the only thing Isaiah saw would have been a vision of the future. And three times in Daniel, the word refers to visions that Daniel saw as God gave them to him. It was also used in Daniel concerning the dreams God gave Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm saying that Isaiah saw this as a vision. That's what the word is talking about here. He was seeing something that God was giving him that he then uh, put pen to paper and recorded. Now in the next four verses, God pronounced judgment on Babylon. And we now know that was carried out by Medo-Persia, who was unknowingly acting as God's agent at that moment in time. These verses have a military warfare tone to them. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't think of this army that we're going to discuss as a homogenous group of countrymen. The armed forces of the day use many conscripts and mercenaries as part of their army. And the Medo-Persian army would have consisted of men from throughout the region and possibly beyond. So here we are now, I think we're getting into this typology a little bit of this Medo-Persian army that is going to destroy Babylon being a type of the end times when Babylon is destroyed by the Lord, the God of hosts, which is talking about him as the, the God of the armies. Uh, Isaiah 13:2, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. So in this context, lifting up a standard on a bare hill where it can be easily observed from long distances indicates to the troops that a gathering place has been established and they are to rally to it. And this was a common method of summoning troops in that day. You didn't get a draft notice. They put up a banner or something like that. They didn't have the communication systems, of course, that we have today. A standard, the word is uh, nace, means a signal pole, a standard, an ensign, a banner, or sign. It refers to a rallying point or a standard which drew people together for some common action or for the communication of important information. Rallying around the standard was particularly important as a means for gathering troops together for the purpose of warfare. Now we've already noted this concept in Isaiah 5.26 where we read that he will also lift up a standard to the distant nation, which was a reference of, to when God gathered the Assyrian army together as his instrument to impose divine discipline on Israel and Judah. And later in this chapter, we're in chapter 13 and verse 17, we'll see that the Medes were the army God used to punish Babylon, but they partnered with the Persians and had many conscripts and mercenaries with them. Figuratively speaking, once these warriors came close in response to the raising of the banner, they would be beckoned on a more personal level, level with the voice calling them and the hand waving them in. It's also possible that in this verse, the standard referred to summoning those who were far away, while the hand and the voice represented summoning those who were already close by. Either way, this is a place where this army is being assembled to come together. So they were being gathered together 
so that they would be able to enter the doors of the nobles, which was a reference to Babylon. Now, some theologians believe there was a gate into Babylon called the Gate of the Nobles, and I'm unaware of any confirmation of that claim. That's certainly possible. There may have been a gate there that only the important people were allowed to come through. Who knows? That's how they did things then. They had a very strict social class structure, I suspect. But nevertheless, I don't think we know that for sure. Maybe an archaeologist student would know. The word uh, nobles here is nadiv, and it refers in this context to those of noble birth, and it may be translated princes. It also means to be ready, to be willing, referring to one who distributes according to his own will, the nobleman. He can make his own choices and do as he wills. The ancient meaning of the root had the sense of doing something or of offering something with a willing heart as a sign of honor. The concept of noble birth, hence princes, is the obvious context here. It's not about any kind of charity here. It's about noble people. God is not talking about noble Babylonians in any good sense of the word, though. We don't want to misunderstand our understanding of the word noble. Here it's simply referring to a rank and power and that kind of thing. He's referring to arrogant people who hold a significantly power, powerful position as people in a nation, but who are in opposition to him, and he's going to destroy them. Now, this army is not being invited into Babylon by the Babylonian leadership. It's being sent in by Yahweh. <clears throat> now, in the next verse, these warriors are called consecrated or sanctified. In Isaiah 13, 3, I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. You can see here at the end, I, I'm not crazy about our NASB uh, translation here for to execute my anger. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, we ordinarily would not think of an army of pagans being referred to as holy or sanctified. I mean, we're used to that being applied to believers. But in this case, they're being set apart for the completion of a mission from God without regard for their individual personal state of holiness or lack thereof in the sight of God. Consecrated or sanctified, the words kadash, means to be set apart, to be holy or sacred, or to be removed from common use. Uh, the, the root refers to setting someone or something apart for a special purpose without regard for spiritual status. And we almost always attach spiritual significance to the use of the word, but only in the sense that God's plan is being worked out through these set-apart pagans can it be considered spiritual truth because these pagans are anything but godly and spiritual. So in the, God is just simply taking these pagans he has, a, he has a use for them. He's setting them apart, calling them out to do that particular project without any consideration for whether they are believers or not, and obviously they're not. So these pagans do not know it, but God is directing their steps to accomplish his will. He commanded and called these pagans to do his will. And these words leave no doubt that he is commanding them to, them to do his will, and they will have no choice but to do his bidding. The word command is tsawa, and it means to command, order, tell, or instruct. It involves a forceful statement 
proclaimed with force and authority, instructing others what they must do. And the word called is karad. It means to call or summon. It refers to calling a person to come into one's presence or to give them a task. There's no equivocation in these words. The army will do what God leads them to do. But these are not audible commands. God is leading these people unawares. They have no choice but to go, but they don't know that. And I think it can be fairly said that God would not force a peaceful people who had no desire for warfare and conquest to invade another nation. But he is using the natural proclivities of these people and nations already possessed for invading and conquering their neighbors in order to facilitate his divine will. In other words, he's just using what they were already going to do and channeling in the direction he wanted it to go. He's not forcing a people who had no desire to murder, rape, and pillage. It's not what he's doing. These people already had the desire to do that. He's just channeling it against Babylon for his own purposes. And there's likely an element of revenge present among these warriors who no doubt, along with their countrymen, had suffered in previous years under the military might of Babylonian army attacks and subsequent subjugation. I mean, these people were always at war each other. Somebody was always trying to conquer somebody else and back and forth and on and on. It's just a symptom of our fallen world. Somebody's done a history of the world in terms of warfare and found that as far back as they can go in history, there's only been, I don't know, 7, 10, 12 years maybe in total when, when the world hasn't been at war somewhere on the face of planet Earth. Now, God even called this army my mighty warriors and my exulting ones. Now, this seems to suggest a level of intimate relationship that is not actually present. These are pagan men being used for God's purposes, in this case, to express his anger with the Babylonians and to inflict his judgment and his wrath on them. And they are not part of the family of God. They are simply his instruments being used for his purposes, which are entirely righteous. In turn, he will deal with them when the appropriate time comes. And in the end, God will be glorified through these men. His plan for history will in part be executed by these men. And eventually, these men, along with the rest of the pagan world, will themselves be judged. The word Mighty warriors here is gibor, and it may refer to individuals or to a collection of people engaged together in a like-minded pursuit, whether political or military. In terms of individuals, it means manly, vigorous, a hero, or a champion. It refers to a person noted for physical strength, and it's often related to fighting ability. It may refer to a renowned man who is great in stature, power, and importance. In terms of warriors, it refers to those engaged in or experienced in warfare. And this could also be translated mighty ones or mighty men, but because the context is obviously referring to an army here, uh, mighty warriors is an appropriate translation. The word exalting is alis. Alis means rejoicing, reveling, jubilant, and exultant. It pertains to a state of great joy and so exultant. It has an element of pride, especially because of triumph or success. And the word proud is na'ara, and it means majesty, pride, arrogance, and conceit. It refers to unreasonable and inordinate self-esteem. 
So what we have here, the picture that we have here, is a picture of a proud, arrogant army spoiling for a fight. This is probably an army composed of men with experience in combat who have a proven track record of success in the immediate past. Babylon may have previously dominated the region, but now this army is going to engage them again, and it expects to defeat them, which is normal, I guess. No army goes into battle thinking they're going to get beat. I mean, if they're going to try to conquer somebody, they think they're going to be able to do it. Whether they do or not ends up uh, being a question mark until it's ended. Now, some theologians want to assign this army's exuberant mood to rejoicing in God's majesty or excellency, but these are not God's people. I mean, I just spent the last 10 minutes or so talking about these are not God's people. These are pagan people. They don't like God. They don't recognize God. They don't care who God is. They got their own pagan gods. So this is just, I, I, it blows my mind that some people would even think this, but some do. Uh, they've been led by God to this place for his purposes, but they don't know that. They're simply his tools, and they're being used to execute God's wrath against Babylon. Their leaders probably thought it was their own idea, but we know it was not. And God's leading in our lives in the world is often not recognized until after the fact and in hindsight. Now, as I mentioned I had a problem with the last uh, clause in, the, in, in, the, in our verse, in the NASB. It reads, to execute my anger. But they added the explanatory word execute in the text. And while true, that word is not in the original text. The preposition could have been translated for instead of to, rendering the translation for my anger. And I think that's better anyway. I think it's clearer in English, and it doesn't need an explanation added to the text. Uh, the most desirable situation, of course, is to translate the text into English without adding explanatory words that are not in the original text if the original meaning can be preserved that way. It's never, of course, possible to do a complete word-for-word -word translation, but that should be the goal whenever possible. Now, this vision must have been something quite exciting or more likely shocking to see. Isaiah's shock or perhaps even fright is clearly revealed in these verses. Uh, this must have been a large army that would have quite naturally been making a lot of noise and created a lot of business as they went about their daily routine preparing for a march into the combat zone. So let's look at verses 4 and 5 here. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people a sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. The word tumult is uh, ha <clears throat> hamon, and it means sound, roar, murmur, and bustle or turmoil. In this context, it refers to a troop of soldiers conceived of in terms of tumult with an emphasis on the large size of the troop since the size alone would necessarily make them cause a tumult. Uh, we could probably refer to what Isaiah saw as organized chaos. In English, we define tumult as a loud, confused noise, especially one caused by a large mass of people, and that is a good description of the situation here. Now, the crowd aspect as the source of the chaos is described as being like that of many peoples. These people are from many kingdoms around the Mesopotamian area. 
We've already noted that this army would have been composed of not only Medes and Persians, but it would have been composed of many conscripts or slaves and mercenaries from the region. There were probably many languages being shouted back and forth. The armies at that time operated with animal power. There must have been oxen and camels present as beasts of burden and as modes of transport. And there may have also been sheep and goats present as a source of milk, cheese, and meat. Animals are noisy and they create some turmoil with their needs for food and water and other elements of care. And they're just plain dirty to have around in a large group. They can be noisy and they can create dust. They need to be moved about. Combat training would have generated a lot of noise as the soldiers prepared for close quarters combat, which in that day and time, close quarters combat was the order of the day. They didn't have snipers who could pick people off from uh, half a mile away then. You had to get close to your enemy. So we're reminded once again that it's God who has put this army together. He is the Lord of hosts, that is, the God of the armies. But this is not a reference to a heavenly angelic army. It is a reference to the human army that he is assembling to carry out his divine wrath against the Babylonians. Mustering the army for battle means the army was being assembled in an orderly fashion in preparation for moving out and embarking on the mission God assigned it. Hence, the organized chaos, not disorganized chaos. Isaiah was being allowed to observe the initial stages of gathering a large army into a cohesive mass of people and animals that could be efficiently and effectively moved to the battlefield from the staging area they were in at that time. <clears throat> this army has been assembled from different nations and nationalities. How far some of the soldiers came is not stated, but the words suggest that some have come from a very long distance away. The word far country here is Eletz Merhak, means a distant place or region noted for its long distance from a particular person or a group of people. Now we have no way of knowing how many soldiers were from the immediate area and how many came a great distance to be part of this army. The word Eretz may be a reference to the whole world or earth, but it may also refer to a region or a territory that is a geographical subset of the earth. Uh, that means we don't know how many came inside the Mesopotamian Middle East region. They could have all been from the immediate region. Could God have brought people from, say, China or Japan? Well, of course he could have, but it seems more likely the soldiers were recruited from the Middle East area. I suspect if we could go to a war college or a military college library, we could probably look up and find out how armies were assembled back then and where they got their people and so forth, but I don't have access to all those resources and it's really not particularly that important anyway. The point here is God is gathering this army of pagans together to do his will. The farthest horizons, Hashemayim Katzeh, means the end extremity or limit. It refers to a boundary marking the uh, extremities of something and horizon refers to the sky or the heavens and to the abode of God. God was interacting with this army he assembled, an army that was going to be his instrument for the accomplishment of his purposes. Well, what were his purposes? Well, it was for the purpose of executing his wrath on an evil nation. The word instruments, kali, carries 
many different meanings. It can mean armor, bag, carriage, furniture, instrument, jewels, sacks, stuff, things, tools, vessels, weapons. It has it's a very wide-ranging word in the Hebrew language. But here it denotes the equipment, containers, the tools appropriate to a, to a given service or occupation. In this context, the army mustard is a tool and a weapon for his use to destroy the evil Babylonian Empire. So Kali, in this instance, refers to this army as an instrument. Indignation. Za'am means anger, righteous anger, indignation, or fierceness. The root means to be enraged and wrath. So our English word indignant is a little bit of a tame word here. It doesn't carry the weight that I think this Hebrew word deserves. I think enraged or rage would be the best English words to to use that best defines what this scripture is revealing to us because indignation is way, in, in English at least, is way too mild a term. This is talking about being enraged here. <clears throat> so inherently understood with the intent to destroy the whole land is the destruction of Babylon as a political, economic, and military entity. The word destroy is chakal, and it means to spoil, to corrupt with the sense of complete destruction and irreparable damage. But And that's true for them as a political entity. They were wiped out. But it's not true in terms of Babylon as a geographical location, which we'll get into more in future lessons here. Because as I said earlier, I don't think it's going to completely and ultimately be re- destroyed until the end of the Great Tribulation. So God raised up an army to destroy Babylon. He used that army to impose his wrath on a wicked pagan nation that he wants to use to impose his divine discipline on Judah and Jerusalem. But the nation was not destroyed in the sense that it will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation, and that is still in the future. So I think we have both here. We have this short-term destruction of Babylon at the hands of the means of Persians, but that in itself is an end times type of the ultimate destruction of Babylon that we're going to continue talking about over the next three or four weeks probably. Okay, that's all I have for today. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll close. Father, we thank you for these amazing truths that you have given us in the Word of God. We're grateful that you have chosen to reveal to us your plan for history that includes Israel. Uh, We're thankful that you led all of us as individuals and as Bible students to come to know and understand that Israel was a nation that you created for your purposes. You made covenants with them. They are still part of your plan and purpose. In fact, they are being regathered right now as as a fulfillment of prophecy in order to be divinely judged as you pass them under the rod with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This gathering in unbelief will ultimately result in their divine discipline to where they will come to faith and the remnant will be saved. So we thank you that you have allowed us to see these things and to understand these things. And I pray that we, by teaching them here, other people who are outside this local body will hear these things and come to know that there is a plan and a purpose for Israel and they have not been replaced by the church. Father, once again, I pray that you lead us and guide us in the selection of our uh, new pastor, whoever he may be. I pray for your blessing on Alex Garcia and his family as he travels up here a week from today to address our congregation in both hours and both pulpits. And I pray that you would 
bless him in his ministry, whether he comes here or stays there, whatever he has to do in the future for you. I pray that it honors and glorifies your name forever and forever. I pray, Father, that you help us to to make these decisions on your behalf as we are choosing a man who will be our representative before you as the shepherd of this local flock here. So just, we're just praying and asking you to help us. Father, I, I do pray for everyone here today again. I pray that you bless them and keep them. There are many things in this world that assault us and attack us, and we can allow them to get us down and question our faith and question you, but that's not what we should be looking. We should be looking at you because you, we know that you have the resolution to these things, and it's being worked out. It may not be to our liking that it is slow in our sight, but we know that it's not slow in your sight, and it's coming to, to a close quickly, and Jesus will come back and get his church. Tribulation will happen, and, he, and the kingdom will begin. We know that these things are soon and near, and we pray that they would be soon and near in our sight as well as in yours. But Father, we thank you for all that you do for us in this life, and we thank you for your presence with us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Priscilla is, is in charge of all of that, I think. Okay, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I will give you a moment to do that, and then I will open us up with a prayer, and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you that by means of Jesus, by who he is and what he did on the cross, our sins are forgiven or granted eternal life based only on faith in him. We thank you for that, but yet we know that we still commit personal sins at this time in our lives, and uh, we can come to you and confess those sins, and you're so gracious not only would you confess the sins that we, or forgive the sins that we confess, but you forgive us the sins that we don't even realize that we committed, so we Thank you for these great blessings you have given us in Christ Jesus. In fact, we are thank you for all of the blessings that we have that are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So help us remember that those, those blessings are far greater than any earthly blessings we could ever possibly accrue. So help us remember that and help us uh, work and labor and strive to glorify your name by doing uh, things, heavenly things that, that glorify your name, things that are worthwhile in terms of heavenly merit and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here this morning. I pray that you bless them and keep them in the coming week. There are many uh, disturbing things going on around us in the world, but help us to remember that you have a plan and a purpose for history, and it's working out the way that you have designed it to be worked out. And help us to keep our eyes focused on living our lives with a biblical, eternal worldview in mind so that uh, we are glorifying you in all that we do, and these things that, that are down here on earth will pale in significance to the uh, 
highly significant things that we can do in your name while we're living this life. We pray for your blessing on our Bible study this morning. We thank you that we're able to come into this house and to worship it and to understand it, not worship it, but to understand it and freely teach it so that we can uh, know who you are as, as you have revealed yourself to us in the Word and what you want us to do and how you want us to relate to your Word and what you want us to know through it. So we thank you for that very much today. And we thank you for your presence with us here in this house this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 13 today. And as, I, as I've been going through Isaiah 13 and 14, my original thought was that there are some um, short-term and long-term prophecies in here and that um, he's talking about the Babylonian destruction at the hands of the Medes and Persians, and then he's talking about the day of the Lord. The more I've gone through this, and that's probably going to come through heavily in the lesson this morning, but the more I've gone through this, I'm not so sure that these chapters aren't totally about the day of the Lord, from the 13.1 to 14.23, and then it moves on to Syria. And, and I think one of, the, one of the later lessons that I came to this realization, I talk about this, but I'm beginning to think that in these verses, in these two chapters here, that the Babylonian uh, destruction at the hands of the Medes and Persians is a type of the Babylonian destruction in the day of the Lord. And that might be the more significant thing that's going on here. But we'll go through these two chapters. So just keep that in mind as we're going through this today, because I don't think I really emphasize that in this lesson. I'm, I'm a couple lessons ahead here, so... Um, trying to keep straight in my head what I've done from week to week can be a little difficult. It's a little difficult when I'm not ahead, but it's more difficult when I get a little ahead. So anyway, here, here, here we go. So I, I may be commenting on that situation as I go through this. Um, in, in this section of Isaiah, then, there's a series of prophecies concerning various nations that posed, posed a threat to Israel that are, are being revealed. Uh, depending on the translation, they're... they're called either oracles or burdens. The nation's uh, record here suggests that the condemnation of the nations and their practices contain a message for Israel. Given that Israel's leadership exhibited a tendency to cast their lot with the nations, it may be that these oracles were designed to remind Israel's leaders that partnering with foreign powers was futile. The oracles also would have encouraged the remnant those within Israel who trusted the Lord. No nation, regardless of its perceived power, will stand before God. So, so much as what is being revealed here in chapters 18 to 23 that we'll get to later, but beginning here actually in, in 13 with Babylon, and then 14 goes into Assyria and, and so on. Uh, but while this is all still in the future, Isaiah received this revelation. It's occurred... Uh, some of this has occurred and is now in the past, but not all of it, like, like the Day of the Lord prophecies. But these prophecies then were not written to the nations themselves. They were written to the Israelites. Specifically, Isaiah was preaching to the people of Judah. And in so doing... ...and the history of the nations of the world. Emmanuel... God with us was going to establish his kingdom 
and all the nations of the world were going to be under his authority. The plan that he has devised for the course of human history will play out exactly as he has envisioned and planned it. And ultimately, God will crush the world's opposition to him and establish the kind of kingdom that he originally created the world to be. In the final analysis of these things, not only will the Israelites be saved, but many Gentiles will come to faith as well. So the Israelites were being assured that they could trust God to fulfill his promises and to punish the pagan nations. Now, for example, we've already talked about this, but Ahaz trusted Assyria, and God used that nation to punish him for his foolishness. But Hezekiah, on the other hand, listened to Isaiah, trusted God, and saw Sennacherib's Assyrian army destroyed outside Jerusalem. So trusting in God is a major point being made in this section of Isaiah. Now, one of the problems Israel's always face is the nation's desire to be just another nation in the world. Uh, they simply won't be accepted by the world, however, and considered to be just another nation on planet Earth, and they're never going to be. Uh, this section of Isaiah helps reveal the difference between Israel and the rest of the world. Now, can God deliver Israel from the pomp and power of the world? Will he be able to restore her as chapter seven or chapter 11 promises? Of course, that was by means of the branch. Chapter 11 was about the branch. And the answer is a resounding yes. Furthermore, these chapters demonstrate the folly of trusting in nations whose doom is already sealed. God is the master of the nations. It is at his command that the armies move out to destroy one another, both great and small. Thus, it is foolish for Israel to trust in her own system of alliances with the necessary commitments to foreign gods to save her. Only God, who has promised to save her, can save her. And, of course, Israel's still facing that same dilemma today. Now, they have, probably with our help over the years, developed a great military, and they're perfectly capable of defending themselves to some extent. But they're, nevertheless, they're still a tiny nation, and they're surrounded by huge land areas and millions upon millions of people who want to wipe them out. And in the end, that's going to come close to happening, but the intervention of God will keep that from happening. So we need to understand that God specifically created Israel to be a nation separate from all the other nations. Israel was not in existence at Babel. You will find no mention of Israel in the table of nations at the Tower of Babel. Sarah was barren and bore Isaac only as a result of the supernatural intervention of God in her life. And we see that here in Genesis 11:30. Sarai was barren, no child. And that word barren means sterile. She could not have a child. Rebecca was barren and only conceived after Isaac prayed to God on her behalf. We see that in Genesis 25:21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now this word barren is akar, and it means to be infertile, sterile, and barren. It refers to being sexually infertile 
and therefore, in these contexts, impossible for a woman to bear a child. It has nothing to do with the failure to get pregnant. It has everything to do with the inability to get pregnant, all right? Sarah and Rebecca could not have children, period. It took divine intervention then to produce the fathers of Israel, Isaac and Jacob, and through them the nation. Then it was a divine act of natural preservation and propagation that moved the Israelites into Egypt where they could develop into a great nation. We see that in uh, Genesis 50:20. As for you, meaning Joseph's brothers, you meant evil against me, meaning Joseph, but God meant it for good in order to bring out this present result to preserve many people alive. Balaam said that Israel could not be counted among the nations and her people would dwell apart from all of the other people of the world. In Numbers 23.9 And I see him from the top of the rocks and I look at him from the hills. Behold, a people who dwells apart and he will not be reckoned among the nations. No matter how much Israel wants to be a part of the world, they will never be because God made them to be a nation apart. Early in the nation's history, the Israelites wanted a king just so they could be like all the other nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 4 or 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. So Israel's fondest hope is to be accepted into the consortium of nations of the world as they exist today. They fervently hope that once they are accepted into the League of Nations, they will no longer be hated and persecuted. But that's untrue. They'll never be accepted because they are God's people who must be in existence for the king to return to set up his kingdom. And I'll mention this a number I have already, and I will continue to mention it. Matthew 23, 39, Jesus cannot come back until the Jews call on him to come back, utter this messianic cry. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you, meaning the Jewish leadership of the time, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Satan knows that. He hates it, and he will do everything in his power to destroy the Jewish people in order to prevent the return of the king. He tried to kill them off before the Lord was born, in other words, in places like Egypt and Haman in Syria, in Babylon, where he tried to kill all the Jews, and there were other instances. And he's tried to kill them off since then through various pogroms and the Holocaust and Islam and so forth. So it's still going on today. He's still trying to wipe out the Jews. And he's still going to try to do it during the tribulation because he knows if he can wipe them out, he defeats God, he thinks. That's not going to happen. So the point to this this morning is to show that Isaiah's prophecies concerning the Israelites as a distinct entity, a nation, and a group of people belonging to God in contrast to the rest of the world as an entity that is acting in concert with the plans of Satan and his satanic world system to destroy Israel and thereby 
defeat God in his plan for history. So Israel is the only nation in the world to be specifically created by God for his purposes. Remember Exodus 19.5, there to be his priests and a holy nation. All the other nations are simply the result of the natural propagation of the human species. They were divided up into geographical areas called nations at Babel, but they already existed as people groups descended from Adam. They simply changed location, but through supernatural creative activity, God created the Jewish people and he established Israel as his nation. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests to the world, as I said, but they not only failed in that mission, they rebelled against it. One day, however, they will be restored in fulfillment of God's unconditional covenant promises he made to them. Now, the first prophecy in this section of Isaiah in chapter 13 concerned Babylon. Therefore, I think we should learn something about the history and background of that nation, just very briefly. At the time Isaiah was revealing these prophecies, Assyria was the power broker in the region, and Babylon had yet to defeat Assyria and replace that nation as the dominant power. And that does not mean, however, that Babylon was not in existence. It had a long history in the region where power ebbed and flowed from nation to nation. The area has been populated from not long after the flood, and Babylon was an important trading, political, and cultural power center. In the Assyrian language, the name means gate of the gods, which is Babalu. Sounds like something Fred Flintstone would say, doesn't it? Uh, which is appropriate, but think about this. It means gates of the gods. And when the facts surrounding the Tower of Babel incident and the descriptions of the area concerning the end times are understood, it seems like Babylon is an extremely important portal through which evil is imported into and headquartered in this world. There is some very significant evil spiritual significance attached to Babylon, not only as a place on the map, but as a figurative representative of evil spiritual forces in this world. Hammurabi, uh, 792 to 750 BC, was one of the early powerful Babylonian leaders about three centuries before Moses and the Exodus. And throughout the centuries, the city was dominated by various people groups, including the Kassites, the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Elamites, and after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the Medes and the Persians, and so on. You can see the region here at the height of their power. Of course, they were this area right in here, but the Medes and the Persians were over here. And of course, the Persians are still there today. We call them Iranians. They call themselves Persians. They're not Iran. Iran is a Western Gentile power broker imposition on the, on the region. They are Persia. Turkey, of course, is up here, but it wasn't Turkey then. Assyria was in this location right up here. Of course, Israel's over here, Egypt down here, the Arabian Desert down this way. And, of course, here's Babylon right here along the Euphrates, not that far from the mouth of the Persian Gulf. So it's a very important trade center, cultural center, and those kinds of things. And the city was large, and both archaeological and historical records suggest it was beautiful. It was home to the famed Hanging Gardens, which were classed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
Here is an artist's rendition of what the Ishtar Gate possibly looked like. It was, I'm sure this is very close to it because you have a lot of remains of it. In fact, the gate was found, and I believe it's in a museum in Berlin at this time. So it's, this is a magnificent city. You can see a ziggurat in the background. The Euphrates is clear in the back over here. The Euphrates split the river in two, or split the city in two, rather. Uh, here's an artist's rendition of what the Hanging Gardens may have looked like. We don't know. It was apparently quite ingenious in terms of getting water up to it and tending it and all those kinds of things. Here's another rendition, which is not anything like the other, but whatever it was, it had to be some kind of magnificent, something along these lines. Here is a, a satellite view of Babylon as it is today. There are three places on here where Saddam Hussein had built some hills. One is right here, the other one is over here, and the third one is down here. I believe there's a hotel or something here that is uh, um, guest houses or, or guest homes or a hotel or something right there. But uh, Procession Street is right up here. That may have been leading into the Ishtar Gate there. I'm not sure. It might have been the picture we saw a little bit ago. Uh, number four here is a, is a pagan temple to, uh, I can't read that, Ninmok or something on there. I can't read it on here. can't see it up there either. But it's right up here. Here, four, number four. Um, there are some rebuilt temples here in this area on six. Now, seven here is the Greek theater, and of course, that wouldn't have been built until Alexander the Great and later. So that that was not part of Babylon early on. Uh, now, here in this area, they say these are the ruins of the Tower of Babel right here. We don't know that, but on the other hand, there's no. Re it had to be there somewhere. This may very well be the spot where the Tower of Babel was. We don't know for sure, probably. Um, this canal right here follows the outline of the old wall to some extent. So it's a very interesting place. This is important because what we're going to see in these prophecies is there's prophecies that say once Babylon is destroyed, it's never going to be inhabited again. Has that happened yet? Well, many people say yes. I'm going to say no. That is something that is coming up yet, and we haven't got there yet. This is a reconstruction of, the, of what the gate probably looked like, but this is, I believe, an actual uh, mosaic that came off of it of the lion, another one of an animal that was there on the wall that, is, uh, that they've recovered, and another one of a lion. Some cuneiform writing that, that, that was on the outside of the gate there. Can anybody translate that for us? No? Okay. And these are some uh, reliefs of Marduk. What was that? <laughs> okay. So that's all the pictures I had here. But you get the idea that it was a magnificent-looking place. So it was built on both sides of the Euphrates, which were connected by a bridge. Its walls were massive. It had a lengthy... Uh, possibly 11 miles, but estimates vary. 12-foot wide outer wall and an inner wall 21 feet in width. They could race chariots on the, up, on the inner wall. The city had eight gates, the most famous being the Ishtar, which we looked at. Canals were built around the city for trade, defense, and flood control. Agriculture thrived due to the annual flooding of the river. The city contained many temples built to honor various pagan deities. A temple named Esagila, which means 
house whose head is raised high was built to the city's primary god, Marduk. A huge ziggurat named Edamananki, which means the house that is the foundation of heaven and earth, uh, was built seven stories tall or about 300 feet high. And I don't think that's an accident. In Satan's mind, Babylon must be considered as the foundation of heaven and earth in his mind. So as the ziggurat suggests in a more significant sense, Babylon represents dark spiritual forces and all the worst elements of Satan's world system. During the tribulation, Babylon figuratively represents the business, government, and religious elements of world society, which suggests life in total under that satanic regime. But it will also be a literal city. Babylon represents a unified world system of rebellion against God, and Revelation 17 and 18 in particular reveals those truths. Uh, There's something about Babylon from the Tower of Babel, where false religion was first revealed in that gate of the God's place, to the end of the dispensation of grace that indicates it is a place where the God of this world has directed his attention and manifested his evil plan for the world. I believe that Babylon will be rebuilt. It will be the Antichrist world headquarters during the tribulation. Zechariah indicated this when the woman identified as wickedness was predicted to be placed in Shinar or Babylon during the end times. Zechariah wrote, then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar, and when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. So during the kingdom... Babylon will be a place of incarceration for demonic experience. And that's when Babylon will ultimately be completely uninhabited is once the kingdom begins. And it's going to be void of human habitation at that time. Revelation 18.2 And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Dr. Garland had this to say in various passages concerning the ultimate destruction of Babylon. She is said to become a devastated wilderness. These passages make mention of various animals of the wilderness as an indication that she will remain uninhabited. Now John is told at her destruction, Babylon has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul, unclean spirit. The declaration of the angel makes explicit that which was only hinted at in the Old Testament use of certain terms describing the animals attending her destruction. And Dr. Garland's commentary on Revelation, it's a two-volume commentary, it's quite, it can be downloaded uh, free of charge here. That's the spiritandtruth.org. You can download his, his commentary free there. It's very good. I'm using it as the I'm teaching Revelation in seminary this semester, and I'm using this book as the commentary for uh, Revelation. The students aren't going to like it because it's both of them are this thick, but <laughs> it's an excellent commentary. Jeremiah 50:39. Therefore, the desert creatures will live there along with the jackals. The ostriches will also live in it, and it will never again be inhabited or dwelt in from generation to generation. And Jeremiah mentioned this again in Jeremiah 51:37. Babylon will become a heap of ruins 
a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and hissing without inhabitants. So most theologians erroneously interpret Babylon as a reference to Rome, and they spiritualize or allegorize the scriptures in the process, talking about the end times now. Most people think Babylon is a coded reference to Rome. No, Babylon is what? Babylon, not hard. They also believe that the tribulation prophecies relating to the destruction of Babylon have already been fulfilled and that Babylon will never be rebuilt only to be destroyed once and for all during a supposed tribulation, which is what they deny. They think it's already gone and history's moved on beyond them. Generally, they either attribute the destruction of Babylon with the conquest of the city by Cyrus the Great in 539 BC, but in fact, he did not destroy the city or they attribute it to an earlier conquest that was more damaging. Uh, Dr. Allen, who's a dispensational theologian, addressed this issue. He said, it is a contention of the present writer that the city of Babylon will be rebuilt, will become one of the centers of operation of the coming Antichrist, and will be destroyed during the day of the Lord. It is further maintained that this doctrine honors the literal method of interpretation and tends to strengthen the position of dispensational premillennialism against its ever-present contender, namely the non-literal method of interpretation. And I put that in here because I agree. I believe Babylon is going to be rebuilt. I believe it's going to be the headquarters of Antichrist's world system during the tribulation, and I believe it will be destroyed ultimately by the Lord. But there's no doubt in the end that Babylon represents an important doctrinal issue in the Bible whether it's referring to Babylon as the portal for pagan rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel, or as a nation, or as an instrument of divine discipline in the hand of God, or as a figurative representation of the satanic world system, it is the subject of an extensive amount of revelation, both temporal and future. The historical and prophetical books of the Bible relate the history of Babylon in relation to Judah and the destruction of the nation and the temple in 586 B.C. The setting for Daniel is in Babylon. Isaiah and Jeremiah both have a lot to say about Babylon. Isaiah looked to the future, and Jeremiah lived through the Babylonian